the Sports Coaching Podcast with Sam Holmshaw. I am Kieran O'Kane, and you're listening to the Sports Coaching Podcast with Sam Holmshaw. Okay, welcome back to the Sports Coaching Podcast in our latest episode today. Absolutely delighted to be joined by Kieran O'Kane, all the way over in, in Ireland. Kieran, how are you doing? Good, Sam. Yourself? Um, thanks for inviting me along. Oh, it's, 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 it's my uh, certainly my pleasure to have you. Uh, Kieran, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not too bad myself. Uh, I guess as, as, as I always do with every guest I have on in this uh, this, this crazy COVID world and, and, and crazy time that... It doesn't seem to end. I mean, how, how's everything been over at your end? Managed to get nice. to slightly different. Um, where sport has sort of taken a back burner in 2020, we're quite lucky that we got our league and championship played. Um, and the, the sport that I coach and play in in Gaelic football, and um, but it we've been in full lockdown now nearly six weeks, so it's back to elite sports only. So the Irish League and the GA intercounty season still going ahead. Um, and that's basically about it. Now, there has been some calls from grassroots to get grassroots sports up and going again. So I think from this Friday, groups of 15 um, can take part outdoors, but any indoor sports are still out the window. It's slightly um, coming from a teaching and coaching perspective. Um, when you teach PE and coach sport every day, it's strange whenever the, the, your best mate's a laptop yeah. um, where it used to be a whistle or uh, uh, an outdoor surface or something. So um, personally, I don't like looking at the computer screen too much. I'm a get out there and get stuck in into the sport, uh, and especially in the classroom. Um, and I think it's really taken a, a, a back burner uh, sport for a year. Um, maybe it's good for myself. I can recharge the batteries and have another extended play, playing season and keep on saying I'm going to retire. <laughs> but... I've now played in the 90s, the 90s, the 10s, and the 20s, so why not go for 21 and just finish it there? Still young and at heart. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Certainly sounds like you're, uh, you're managing to cope okay as, uh, as frustrating as obviously it all is for all of us. But, but yeah, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned a bit about your, your background there and, and, you know, we always do. So, so Kieran, if you don't mind just uh, giving a, an introduction, I guess, of, of your coaching background, your teaching background, uh, lecturing background and you know, your, your research and practitioner background as well. So I suppose if you want to start at the beginning or, or midway through, that's up to you. Uh, just a, a, a brief overview of, of your journey, what's led you today, just for the listeners, that'd be great. Yeah, um, I'm a graduate of Ulster University uh, in sports studies and currently back there uh, for my son, studying an MSc in sports performance coaching. And that, uh, that's headed up by Tandy and Robin, who are two fantastic people who work with Sport and I in I previously worked with them before in active communities. Um, and the reason it took me back uh, to doing sports coaching and performance, I always like learning. I um, always like doing CPD. And I don't think there's ever a day that I'm not learning something. And it's something that I just um, wanted to do, always wanted to do. As for the doctorate, I think that's put in the back burner when I'm sitting doing this research. Um, there's no way that I could... Uh, research constantly. Um, I'm a lecturer in sport and exercise science at Southwest College. Um, for the listeners that aren't familiar, that's a way out west, as close to the Atlantic as you can get to the American side. Um, it's a, a town called Oma. Um, we have three campuses, Oma, Dungan and Cookstown. Um, I work out of the Oma campus 
Um, I've been lecturing 10 years part-time and four years full-time and I've been in industry before that as a sports development officer and a sports multi-sports coach. Um, the lecturing I love um, and the reason I love it is because I get to influence young people um, and influence what they do and also we have a fantastic team in the sport and exercise department um, based over the three campuses and we actually have our own degree program um, that we developed in 2019 and we put our own stamp on it and made it relevant to the industry and to date it has been very successful and, and that's two ways one because of the students and to the team that's there behind it. Um, if anybody knows me, I love sport. Um, and that's probably where I ended up where I am. I was quite fortunate. Um, a lady called Karen McLaughlin, I was presenting to her at Northwest Regional College where I used to work. She asked me to come along and would I be interested in doing some part-time lecture. Now, it was a goal, um, but not how early I came into it, like 10 years ago. It was something later in life. Um, uh, but I'm there now and I can't see me changing the job forever. Everybody says, oh, teachers get great holidays, but we work hard. Um, just remember when everybody else is booking their holidays, we get the holidays that cost a lot more and we don't get the holidays that we want. Um, I used to love going away in September, but it's been a long time since, and it will be a long time since I get a holiday in September. Um, my background in sport is Gaelic football. For the listeners that aren't familiar, it's a tra traditional Irish sport. Um, it encompasses Australian rules football, rugby, basketball, and many other sports. It's tough going. It's a great sport. Um, and it's quite lucky that I think if you go anywhere in the world, it's sort of, sort of that community carries. Um, it's big in Australia, big in America, and, and the Asian areas now where a lot of Irish teachers have went, Qatar, um, Doha, all those kind of places have all taken um, a massive leap forward. I've been coaching since I was 16, so 20 odd years, not giving my age away. Um, and the reason I just got into the coaching is um, the coaches that I had, I felt that I needed to get something back for what they had done. Um, I'm still playing occasionally, um, not as full on as I'd like to be, and I've taken a step into. Uh, last year was called the coach. Now the manager wants me to be the assistant manager. So I must have done something right last year. Um, and I really, really enjoyed last year, even though it was a sh this year, even the Nutties, um It was a shortened season, but um, really, really enjoyable. Fantastic. Hopefully that's enough of a background. I think I've given away a load of information there. Well, you certainly did. Uh yeah, I mean, I you know, let's just listen. Now I can tell there's a there's, there's a wealth of experience there, Kieran. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, what made you? I guess what made you decide you wanted to be a lecturer? Because that's that's a decision actually that's that I'm weighing up at the minute. Do I go into a, a PhD and, and maybe become a lecturer at a, a university of a college, or do I go more into a, a coaching background? So what what made you go into that? Was it just stumbled upon and and you ended up going in? accidentally or did you always have an interest in it? it it was a goal to be honest um it really was a goal um not until it was at least 40 um because i don't know why i painted a picture but i think at uni most of my lectures were touching towards that age so i thought i needed to build up the experience and um, in regards uh, where i am placed now between further education and higher education that's probably the best area to work with 
Um, to me, real teaching is primary school. Um, uh, what I would call myself, and I've said it quite a lot to Robin and Tandy in the, in the master's course, I'm a facilitator of learning. Um, that's basically what I am. I'm not a teacher or a lecturer. I create an environment, uh, both on the pitch and in the classroom, that one, is enjoyable, two, is active, and three, that I enjoy myself, because if I don't enjoy teaching, what's the point of me being there? Mm. And I think the subjects that I get to teach, which sometimes you get to choose and sometimes you don't get to choose, makes it more enjoyable. Like uh, at the minute, uh, I have a pet love for performance analysis, uh, and that really does um, bring out the good side of me. Um, and then the other one, I think uh, the other people in my team of uh, sports staff will probably say that it's uh, I love a bit of sociology. Uh, and so I think that comes from doing a degree. Um, we had a wonderful lecturer, Paul Darby, back in the day, and um, some of the stuff they taught us in sociology, right, from um, player migration from Africa to hooliganism in sport really was interesting. And I think um, people don't look at sports still in that kind of way. Like all those kind of matters are still out there. And you look at even a Black Lives Matter, and even from the instance from the weekend and the Millwall fans. Like that is a bit of sociology and that culture and history. Um, some people might find it boring, but there's an interest inside it. And I think if, if you can uh, deliver the interest to the students, then you can engage them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I really like that word facilitator. Uh, I think that is I think that is a fantastic description actually of the role. Uh, yeah, I mean I mean great stuff. And I and I guess before we we dive into our, 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 our discussion and, you know, the podcast today, I guess, do you want to just give us a, a for the listeners, a, a bit more of a, a background, if you like, on Gaelic football? I mean, I know myself, I've, uh, I've, I've watched it maybe once or twice, but it's always been a very intriguing sport. It, to me, seems a combination of, of quite a few. I mean, I think it's fantastic from what I have seen it. But yeah, if you don't mind, just, just tell us a bit more about Gaelic football. That'd be great. Well, some people will... Uh, argue that Gaelic football has changed quite a lot. There's been a, quite a lot of topical debate over the last couple of weeks. The, the Dublin team are quite dominant at the minute. But my perspective to, uh, to this is look at the coaching side of things. How can we break that Dublin team down? Um, the money that's been pumped into Gaelic games, um, it's an amateur sport, um, which is uh, fascinating to somebody that doesn't know anything about it. And I think uh, a couple of years ago, um, it was Harlequins that were over in an, um, with O'Neill Sportswear in Ireland and looking at a centre of excellence that I worked in. They couldn't believe that that centre of excellence was uh, paid for by the pockets of the people. Um, now, the attendances that we would get would match championship level in soccer um, and even the Premier League in rugby and stuff. Um, like The All-Ireland Finals on in two weeks' time, or next week, actually, it might be next week, um, and like, there's no fans there this year, but there's 86,000 people that go to that final. Um, it's a great sport. A lot of people love the hurling because it's so fast and tense. I've never played hurling. Um, but again, there's a stick involved and a lot of people think, cheapers. I don't want to get wrapped around the head. Um, the sport has changed quite a lot. Uh, it's become more, in my eyes, more professional. Um, for instance, last year, it was either last year or 2018, the Dublin team got a photo taken of the backroom team. There was 36 people in the backroom team. Um, and that's everything from a psychologist, nutritionist, to um, 
masseuse, all that kind of stuff. So that's professional. Yeah. The money that's been pumped into it um, would be as close to what some of the championship teams are spending. Not nowhere near Premier League, um, but what they're spending. Like there's millions in it, um, and it's all from an amateur ethos. Um, will it go professional? Um, back in 2006, this is what I read about my, in my degree. It's 14 years later, and it still hasn't went professional. There may be an element um, of the way rugby went, uh, rugby union, member of that used to be amateur and then went professional, and maybe an element that way. Um, but people have to remember that Gaelic Games is built for the clubs. So, although a player plays for the county, um, their first love is their club. And it's quite interesting that a lot of those players that play in their county or play in an All-Ireland final will be back teaching, plumbing, um, maybe in a doctor situation the Monday after they've won an All-Ireland. Whereas uh, if you think from another sport, um, even for instance in the Super Bowl and stuff, those people are back out being professional American footballers. These people go back into their day jobs. Um, and like if you pick up an injury, you still have to get on with your day job. Um, it's a great sport. Um, if you haven't tried it, give it a go. Um, and the other side of it is like the physical element of it now has went to a different level. Um, the SNC within it, um, the performance coaching within it, even the performance analysis and everything within it, the science and um, the sport and exercise science behind the whole game has evolved. Um, and that's because the people are pushing it forward. And the dubs are the benchmark at the moment. Um, us in Tyrone, uh, we have a new set of managers, uh, Brian Duhur and Fergal Logan. We used to be the team that everybody was looking up to. Um, in 2003, five and eight, we won three All-Irelands and it took us a long time to win it. I think that we just maybe fell short in the way that Dublin are dominating the game now because we had a talented group of players at that stage as well. And Dublin have an, a, a phenomenal, and like, the team that they have now is exceptional. They're like, for instance, Fenton and Matfield. I don't think I've ever seen a, a player that dominates an area within a game and makes it look so easy. Yeah, I mean, that is that, that is fascinating. I mean, the thought of playing in front of 86,000 fans and then <laughs> turning up to work day after is just incredible. You, you you don't really hear anything like that. Yeah, that is, that's the stuff, you know, for, for football you hear about back in the way. No, that's uh, really, really fascinating. I mean, great insight. So, the Sports Coaching Podcast with Sam Holmshaw. Yeah, I mean, I guess that uh, that leads us nicely to uh, to introduce our topic today. So we decided we were going to talk about the topic of, very nicely worded, I thought was, uh, does a name necessarily make a good coach an insight into coach decision-making ability? Uh, pardon my stumble there. Uh, now that is... That, that's really interesting to me. I've done a lot of work about coach decision-making on my own master's course. So, you know, I guess to to pose the question to, 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 to start us off today, Kieran, I guess do you want to give us an introduction of, of what is coach decision-making? So when we say coach decision-making, what do we mean? What's that all about? Yeah, it's, this is something that, um, as a player, I think I found in through the years that decision-making within actual sport and any sport and even it comes to decision making in, in general life like some people can't walk into a shop now and decide between a Mars bar and a Snickers even though one might be 1.19 and the other might be four bars for 99p people struggle to make decisions 
And it's something that I think in coaching as well that it's taken out of coaches and sometimes taken out of the hand of coaches um, to make a decision. And sometimes coaches are really, really good at making decisions and sometimes they are scrutinized very heavily. Um, and again, it depends on the sport uh, because the media has an impact in this and also then how they facilitate or look at the decision that, that the coach made. The other side of it is if a player's taken off, a coach might never give them a reason why they're taken off. So this is all part of the decision-making process. It might be fueled by other factors like um, uh, performance analysis factors, like uh, distance covered, uh, science behind it, all that. But then the last choice is the coach. And some of the things that I am really, really keen and looking at and when, I when I'm doing my research is um, how many years that person's been coaching? How did they learn to coach? Where did they start out coaching? And this follows on later on in the, in the topics that we're going to look at as well. Um, and then why did they get that name? And sometimes a coach doesn't get a job because they deserve it. A coach gets a job because of the name. But have they really learned how to make uh, or construct a coaching session? The other aspect of it, decision-making is a key element of every sport. So if I decide in badminton, they do a drop shot, why did I decide to do that? Um, and those key elements that I looked at within my research is naturalistic decision-making, classical decision-making, uh, recognition prime, and then the one that uh, I'm going to will have um, looked at, I'll use the word steel, Sam, because I did get it for me, is uh, perceptual judgment. Um, and the work that you've done in the MSC through Abraham as well, to Ian Collins. And it was that one and that uh, blog that you triggered some thoughts because initially I had not done my research. And it is a big, big aspect of it as well. Um, the only other thing that I see similar to the research that I'm doing is uh, by GISC. Um, was done in the Scandinavian countries in 2013. Um, but that looked at the playing history of the coach. Um, Mayans doesn't. Mayans looks at the coaching history of the coach. Um, and I think playing history may be, if you look at Mourinho for an example, he had a playing history. But think of any other coaches that have a playing history. They're good pundits, but some of them are not great coaches. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is so... Uh... It's always been something I found really interesting. You know, you think about it at quite a quite a basic level. Uh, you know, like you say there, you talk about a coach making a decision to bring a player off. And, you know, when I think about my experience in football as a kid and, you know, you'd hear all fans probably screaming quite uh, violently, why, why is he taking him off or why is he putting him there or why is he putting him there? And, and you know, and, and at quite a basic level, I've always found it very interesting of, well, the coach has obviously got some form of judgment of how he's seen this game particularly going and, and first come to that decision as his conclusion. But some of these fans are, from their knowledge of the game or whatever, coming from a different form of judgment to their decision. And I've always found that really interesting. I suppose what you were leading up to there in in terms of more the, the theoretical side was, you know, some, some of Andy work, one of my lecturers, uh, talking about the idea of naturalistic and... Uh, naturalistic and classical decision making sounds well good let me apologize for the dog uh which which again i i've always found really interesting he you know he talks about how we can uh train the mind and make the mind very disciplined to thinking about in advance of the decisions we're going to make if that's our actions or our behaviors so i, I mean i've always found that absolutely fascinating but 
you mentioned there about how sometimes coaches are picked on their name rather than picked on maybe the experience or abilities to make coach decisions, which I 100% agree with. Um, you know, I, I think I'd like to ask you, so why, for, for the listeners who are probably unfamiliar of this work or unfamiliar of coach decision-making, why is that such a problem then? Or why is it potentially a problem? Um, this is interesting. Um, and I'm glad that you 100% agree, agree with me. Some people don't agree with me on this one. Um, and I've had a few topical debates with people about this. But, okay, we have a name. I'm going to fire this one out. It's, it's so prevalent. Rooney now is um, caretaker manager, we'll say, of Derby, right? Um, there was quite a, a debate on this in Football Focus over the weekend as well, too. So Rooney now goes from being a player with Derby, they manage them. So how does he manage that change room here his mates? He has no formal coaching qualifications. Um, he has a playing history, but in my eyes, he hasn't learned the other side of the game, where if you look at Klopp, who was a player, and learned the coaching side of the game, and look what kind of person he is now. I don't think there's a player that said a bad word about Klopp through all these, even in Dortmund and stuff. And that's me coming from being a Liverpool fan. I can look at somebody else and look at Joe Smith, who was the Ireland coach. Um, he developed his way through the system as a coach. Um, and I was quite lucky to spend a day with Joe uh, and look and an insight into his life. Um, and the other one, if you look at rugby, there's a lot of players in rugby that have came through the coaching pathway that they just haven't been a name. Um, and a personal perspective, um, I've went for two coaching posts uh, in Gaelic football within the last year. Um, the person that went along with me had eight, eight, eight years experience of coaching at senior level, but being part of the backroom team, not being the, the manager. And we were told we didn't have enough experience. Now, the other side of this is I played in every division in the county and the team, I'm not naming names or nothing, but the team that uh, we went and interviewed for went and chose a manager from outside the county who had no experience of the level that's required within our county. Now, in Tyrone, um, the level of Gaelic football is exceptional compared to some other counties. Um, like the one at Tyrone Senior Championship, um, good luck. He trying to want it. The teams are exceptional. Um, so where is that coach now? That coach has left that club. So they told us we didn't have enough experience. But if you don't give somebody an opportunity, how are they going to get enough experience? Like I didn't have the name. The name didn't fit. The face didn't fit. Um, but I have educational background. I've went through all the steps of the coaching pathway. I've done CPD. And the other thing, I'm continually learning. And there's a couple of things that I've developed from this is that um, the name will fit sometimes because they have learned maybe from other coaches that they went through. But sometimes them names are better at punditry than coaching. Um, and they fit better in there because they're top, they can give a topical debate. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you look at Gary Neville, a brilliant pundit, but I'd love to put him on a coach and coach a team to see where he ends up. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's no disrespect to Gary, but he is. Him and uh, Carragher really bring football alive when they get going. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some other aspects that we can look at. And that, like um, I've learned a lot from four different kind of areas of coaching. And there's a couple of books that I've read 
and, and I also look outside my own sport. Um, if you're very uh, narrow-minded or focused in your own sport, you're never going to be a good coach. I've never given a good 10 out of 10 coaching session and never will because you always learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but Paul Kilgannon, Kilgannon uh, who's a primary school teacher, wrote a book called The Caribou Coaching. Um, and it's an excellent read for anybody who wants to read it. Um, and I've looked a lot at that and I use it within my teaching and the reflective sports coaching. Another one that I was very, very fortunate to get to spend a lot of time with is a, a cricket coach called Eddie Burrell, who's a South African. And he taught me a lot of values in sport. Um, and I think I still carry Eddie's values and the anything that he taught me. And um, these were off the cuff discussions. Um, it was just where I worked. Eddie was Ireland coach at the time. And every Friday, I used to get a cup of tea with him because he landed early to training. And it was, a, I tell you what, um, it was the best discussions you could get for free mm. um, and learning from somebody. The other one, and this is the holiday, uh, believe it or not, I took a book on holidays. Whoever, whoever does that. <laughs> um, John Kavna, who's McGregor's coach. Yeah. Um, like the, he, he, his business is around one or learn. And I tell you what, that's a brilliant read because it gives you a perspective of McGregor that people wouldn't realize uh, what's out there, but it also gives you a perspective of the actual dream of a coach of John Kavna, what he wanted to do. And still to this day, that, that one or learn applies to everything he does. And the last one, and this is where the decision making came out of, um, because it just triggered a light bulb when I was sitting listening, is a fellow called Ed Coughlin who's a skill acquisition and stuff like that. And I was at a presentation that Ed was doing and I was thinking, this is what I want to do for my masters. This is, this is what I'm seeing on the pitch. This is why I get annoyed when I'm coaching and this is why I get annoyed in the pitch. Um, why people can't make decisions and then it goes back to that skill acquisition thing, how we learn skill. And it's the same for coaches, how you learn to be a coach. Like that's a quite a deep thought process there, but it's something that I realize that, right, if we take the name, look at those four key areas that I looked at or some of the stuff that I looked at about the coach, then maybe someday we'll get away from that stigma that a name really is a good coach. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that's a fascinating run for actually. I mean, I think about, you know, to me, it's it's the idea of bias, isn't it? So you think about Rooney at the minute, you know, that he's been brought into that because he was this exceptional player. And he was, he was a fantastic player. Uh, brilliant to watch. He's He's been underneath Sir Alex Ferguson, probably what people would say that one of the, if not the most successful uh, British manager of all time. So the expectancy on him is, oh, well, because he's Wayne Rooney in this example, and he was this fantastic England player, and maybe because he was under Sir Alex Ferguson, is automatically going to do a fantastic job. But, you know, when I when I mentioned the word bias, you know, I think about, you know, when I was started coaching, my dad was a coach. So how I learned to make decisions were based on what I saw my dad doing and decisions that were relevant to that particular context. Now, what I eventually learned at uni over four years is that because I was kind of schooled in that way of coaching and making decisions like that, I always made decisions like that. So I would always use particular phrases or particular language. For example, I might always say the word shape. And that was me making a decision based on how I'd been taught. But actually that's bias. That is coaching bias. That's not relevant to your current context. So 
you know, that was with an under 10s team. Then I can remember going into an under 21 set and trying to make decisions the same way. And it was just, you couldn't do it. So, you know, you think about Rooney now in that particular role. Well, the way he, I, I would, you know, expect, we don't know for certain, of course, but the way I would expect he's making those coaching decisions are based on what he saw with Ferguson or what he might have seen with Moyes or Van Gaal or all these coaches done, because I think that's, uh, I might be right, I think is, is it it's Shemp, the author, is he talks about stages of coaching and that's a trait of a proficient coach taking solutions from previous uh-huh. things that have worked before, what you've seen work before. Uh, but I suppose, you know, when you, when you mention this idea of naturalistic or classical decision-making, some of Andy's work uh, is, is all about, well, actually, your decisions should be aligned to that context. So you need to plan what decisions you're going to make to that. So if it's an under-fives context or an under-21s performance context, or if it's a developmental context, you need to be planning ahead to those decisions. So then when you get into that actual environment in the moment and making a half-time decision or whatever you're going to say in terms of your team talk, it's more aligned to that context, not what you've done before. And, and I, I just think that is... You know, upon discovering all this, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And yeah. and that's why I would agree. And I think the point to make is we're not saying that Rooney's not a good coach. We're not saying that any of these ex-pros are not a good coach. But what we are suggesting is that they've not had that time to plan these aligned decisions, have we? I think that's that's that, that's what we're suggesting, aren't we? Yeah. And one of the things that came out of my um, master's course and, and Pandy and Robin took us back to, to what you're saying is one that you mentioned there, Sam, is about the context. But the other thing is who you're coaching. Um, and sometimes we forget about that. We just turn up, bag of footballs, cones, and then think, oh, this is me. It's nearly like uh, the greatest showman here. The coach is the greatest showman. But we forget we forget who we are um, and why we're there maybe um, is also important. Because if we don't have the who in front of us, we can't coach. Yeah. So we don't. Uh, and I do, um, I do agree with you. I'm a big believer in the context. Um, and as you say, the jump from even under 10s, the under 21s, or even from a grass pitch to a 4G pitch, um, like there's a massive difference in the coaching and the coachability as well too. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. And I think, again, it's, you know, it, it's those perceptions. That, and, you know, I, I suppose in my earlier years, this was maybe why I always disagreed with, with a philosophy where people's understanding of philosophy is that this is, this is how you coach you only have this way of coaching and that's what you do but that might work for a performance setting if you're always working in a performance setting even though then we're still not considering the context or who we're working with but then you know me as a young coach back in the day of you know stepping from like a a preschool environment of 18 months to five year olds and then going into an under 12s and then under 18s or whatever you, you can't do, you can't do the same coaching can you and no. what to me all underlines is like, like like I guess the topic today is this this decision making idea and you know I look at a lot of ex-professional coaches and when you hear them talk on these podcasts and stuff and you think but is that right so you know it's like it's like a lot of pundits say don't they that uh, top players can't be managers in league two settings for example top football players because they've been here and their players are there and they can't then make the decisions for that which again i've always found interesting but but what you're saying there is well actually if they have the capacity to understand who they're working with and can align those decisions that shouldn't be a problem at all should it yeah they should be nearly able to step on the every division and coach yeah. in any division and yeah. um, like you take a, a perfect example even as lampard um and the championship done exceptionally well um and then now is proven it with Chelsea and 
the other side of it is that he knows who he's coaching. He knows his players. And that's why Chelsea are doing so well. Um, like Mason, uh, Mason Mount. Yeah. Am I right? Mason yeah. Mount. Um, t- uh, Abraham. Um, Reese James. Nobody would have known about these people, but Lampard knew who they were. Yeah. Um, and it's given them a chance. Yeah. Um, and if you look outside of other sports, uh, if you look at rugby, for example, they're not afraid to put the academy players in um, because they know who they are mm. and give them a chance. Uh, whereas, uh, for instance, City, Man City, if they need a right back, they'll not look at the academy. They'll spend 60 million and they're still looking for the perfect right or left back. So they are. <laughs> Poor Pep. His defence is uh, not one of his strong points when he's buying players. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you, you, you're so right there. And I, I suppose a good time to introduce now as well. So you, you mentioned recognition prime decision-making. So uh, I think that is probably one of the less common ones, I would think. I think naturalistic and classical is more easy to get your head around. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind, Kieran, just giving the listeners a bit of an introduction to, to what that's all about, because particularly when we're talking about performance settings and that's not mm-hmm. just in sport, that could be things in, uh, I think examples associated are like uh, being a firefighter or a, a doctor trying to save someone's life or whatever. This is where this, this recognition prime decision-making is. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a, a, a very brief overview. This was a, a last minute insertion within my research. And it was just on a, a personal discussion with my supervisor. And the reason it came in quite honestly, was my supervisor comes from an outdoor sports background. And he had said that in canoeing and stuff, I guess there's been a lot of uh, work done in recognition prime. Um, so for instance, if you hop in the water, you got to know what's going on in front of you and why you decision make. Uh, and it also, I think, and I, I'll need to refresh myself on this, but I think it also came within their structures of their coach development program. Um, and canoeing and stuff um, now to be honest it was a last minute decision but it's looking like um, going from the GDMS um, surveys that have been completed that this one and perceptual judgment could come to the fore uh, I think classical decision making could be wiped out because of these other two um, and it's just because of the GDMS has gave us an insight to a different aspect of the coaching and the why part of the coaching as well too, and why the decisions are made. Now, I was quite uh, specific on who I chose as my uh, nine elite coaches because I went from under 17 to senior. And the reason is this recognition prime. So how at uh, under 17 level do you see something compared to somebody at senior level? The other side of it is the coaches that I chose had a coach, had to be coaching at two years or more at an elite level. Now, People might question my elite level aspect of it because remember, Gaelic football is an amateur sport. Um, but the elite level within Gaelic football is under 17 intercounty to senior. Um, and the, co- the reason I've done the two years is I feel that it will back up if I look at the recognition prime. I don't think a coach coming straight in would have any recognition prime aspects to the coaching. Um, and it's only through years of experience that this may come out it might never come out for some coaches um but it may be as what you said earlier on it may be somebody that you locked up to that has it both within their coaching sessions 
it might be that you have to go and look at another sport. And like I, I have been looking at canoeing, and it's just because again the supervisor has uh, facilitated that for me. But if these two things come out, these are new aspects of coach decision making. Um, it may need to be included within um, CPD in future practices. Um, because if we look at the structure of any kind of um, coaching route, uh, even up until a pro license, there's very little decision making within the, the content. And that's all. What, it, what does a coach do? Um, what does a teacher do? What do you do in life? You make decisions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and that's what's so. It, it, it's what's so. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think of the word laughable in some respects i don't know if laughable is a bit disrespectful but 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 you're right you know we're, we're taught a lot of content you know of sessions to do particularly on level one and two to courses then when you get a bit higher up you talk about more football specific stuff or or content should we say but but you're right you're never really actually taught how to make a decision uh, and and you know what i like about that recognition primed research is that that talks about how you you know why 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 the firefighters just do it without thinking about it and, and it's coming yeah. to just how the experience has just taught them to not even just just subconsciously just summarize the best solution to this particular problem like that and that is again it, it, you know when you think about sports performance if you were to ask a lot of and I'm sure this probably came into your research but a lot of coaches about well why did you do that why did you make this decision why did you do that I think some might know. But I would, my guess would be a lot of them, that particularly that maybe haven't gone down an academic route, wouldn't actually know how they came to that decision. Well, it was just the right decision to make at that time, but why? Well, actually, I'm not too sure. And that's I've always found that really interesting, how you know you think about expertise, you suddenly just develop this ability to make good decisions, but you're maybe not actually thinking too much. And 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 But then I suppose does it come to this idea of, of, of the subconscious and conscious thought process, doesn't it? Yeah, there is a psychological element to it um, and a big, big element to it. it um, I know people think, oh, it's coaching, but if you look at the psychological element on the right and the left side of the brain, um, even looking in your own physiological makeup, uh, about your, your heart and your lungs and all, well, what triggers your adrenaline levels um, and those triggers that are out there. Um, it would be interesting that whenever we look at this or as an add-on that we could have done is maybe putting heart rate monitors or something on a coach um, and when they've taken made that decision looking at to see if there's any physiological responses i'm not going down that route because it's going to take me on the whole different side of the data aspect well, of it <laughs> um, but like there's a lot that you can toy with this um, and move it to a different level um, and i think uh, one aspect in golf uh, a number of years ago when rory McIlroy, um pardon the pun, cacted at the Masters. Um, but what uh, some of the psychologists wanted to do was actually put uh, like a thing on his earlobe. Um, and I think it was about the temperatures and stuff. And then they were looking then of why he made that des them decisions. That um, So even looking at the player or the individual performer. And that's the beauty of performance analysis. Um, it does help the coach. But there was a recent study a few years back in Gaelic football, like 48% of coaches in Gaelic football don't use performance analysis or don't know how to. Um, I would like to see now what that is because I know that it is coming in, but that's quite a high number or high statistic. And if you look at performance analysis, it does help form, shape, 
and maybe do coaching interventions and decision-making process. And it also gives you evidence of why you took a player off or why you didn't take a player off. Um, not the GPS stuff. And I'm going to quote a good friend in this one, Dermot Corey. Dermot said to me last week or two weeks ago, we were looking at GPS and, and different things. He says, it's like a taxi driver. Um, a player can run up and down the pitch. A taxi driver can also uh, go up and down a road but never get a fare. Um, so it's like, that's what his aspect of GPS was. Uh, and like a lot of coaches still love GPS, but a player can run 6K but never touch a ball. Um, and have what's their influence on the on the game? Like, um, it's it's using stuff right. Uh, and uh, quite fortunate, other students had Rob Styles there, who is a technical analyst of Stoke City, speaking to them a couple of weeks ago, and he gave a great insight into his role and how he has changed. And again, a man that has went through different pathways to get where he is, but you never hear the word of a technical analyst. Uh, uh, you always hear performance analyst mm -hmm. and it's, he works with Stoke City and he looks at and he's more aligned to what he said with the coaches and it gave me a great insight of going forward how I can use performance analyst, or analysis as well and shaping my coaching and shaping the decisions that I make yeah fantastic fantastic great insight the sports coaching podcast with Sam Holmshaw so I guess that I guess that actually brings us quite nicely onto our our, our, our third segment then uh, of the episode today. So I know we've we, we've actually briefly spoke about the importance of well why why is coach decision making so important? So you know some of some of Andy Abrams' work, my lecturer at Leeds Beckett, he he talks about how everything has to be aligned. So aligned to the context, like you said, aligned to who you're working with, aligned to your sport, aligned to you know, how you're going to go about coaching. So how do, this is, this is all great. We know that, you know, but how do coaches go about, you know, making these aligned decisions or, you know, using that perceptual judgment decision-making or even if we're, we're bringing in uh, recognition prime decision-making, how do coaches learn how to do that? Um, I think if you look at, or go a wee bit of a theoretical side and then look into the, the other side, the how, um, but if you look at the work of Nash and Collins, um, they says that decision-making actually defines a coach. Um, and then if you look then at how we define a coach, right, um, is it somebody that can deliver one aspect of a coaching session or is it they can do the multiple aspects of it? Uh, rugby is great for this because they have a forwards and backs coach. Um, they also have a league coach. Another sport that I like looking at, and um, it's only because I worked in a development centre or centre of excellence for cricket, but they have a lot of specialist coaches within cricket for bowling, batting, um, the psychological element of it, fielding. Uh, and if you look at most sports, there is four or five different skills, technical skills, not the tactical stuff, because some coaches are great at that, but we can't coach the technical aspect of it. Um, and this is where the decision making comes in. So do we do small side of games? Do we do games for understanding? And even going straight back to the very start, the fundamentals of the physical literacy. Um, those are two great stepping blocks for any child or any performer to get them to where they want to go, um, especially physical literacy. And it's, it's just a pity that physical literary, literacy isn't taken up by most sports. It seems to be more invasion game sports. Um, and what the children learn within that. And like, 
if you play an invasion game, um, I think that if you transfer, you should be able to transfer your skills across all sports. And this is where coaches can really help. Um, and some of the things that I like to do is games for understanding, because I think if I can understand what the players are doing within a session, then I can also transfer that to a match day. Um, how I structure my sessions, I've learned um, that you need to create as many decision-making uh, elements of that coaching session that would happen in a match. And that's me creating the decision-making for myself because I can learn already of what players can make decisions. And that's back to that recognition frame. I'm recognizing like this player can make that decision. Yeah. That's why they're playing that position. Yeah. Um, again, then it's taking the blinkers off and looking at the wider picture. I think if you have the blinkers on, you'll pick the same 11, you'll pick the same 15. And it's never that we Johnny, who's an exceptional player, and the eyes of his parents will ever get a chance because they're doing all the stuff in training. You're just not focused on them. And like, um, I think being a Liverpool fan, uh, Curtis Jones is going under the radar at the minute because of the performance of Genie Wijnaldum. Um, and if you look at going back years ago, um, especially in Ireland rugby, uh, Ronan O'Gara and Johnny Sexton, um, Johnny Sexton probably went onto the radar, uh, but at provincial level, they knew what it can do. And it's just that uh, at that stage, Ronan O'Gara was exceptional. And it goes back even as far as Johnny Wilkinson. Um, like what Johnny Wilkinson done in that drop goal, they won the World Cup. Um, like that was probably coached on the pitch. Um, and we'll take credit from this one because Johnny actually used a Gaelic ball to learn how to kick the sweet spot in the rugby ball. So he was over in Limerick, I think, doing a bit of work with some coaches. Um, and that's all part of the decision-making process and also part of the coaching, the ability of the coach to make aligned decisions. Yeah. Um, and look, as I said, you'll never give, if you can honestly say that you get a, give a 10 out of 10 coaching session, you're chatting through your backside because um, there is, and you can honestly review, and I teach this in Reflective Sports Coach, you always learn. There's always one element that you'll go back. If you look at Gibbs and Cobbs, reflective models of learning and stuff, you'll always learn something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is a really, some, some really interesting points you make there. Uh, you know, I mean, I think about myself recently over the last year, I've tried to use this perceptual judgment, decision, decision-making model since I became aware of it. And, you know, I was always that coach that would never really plan. I'd plan something in my head, but I'd never have a written output and turn up. And, you know, if something wasn't working, so, you know, uh, I think the common one in football is if they're not passing, you in, you, you introduce a constraint of two touch or one touch. That That's what every coach will do at football. And I was certainly guilty of that myself. Uh, and, and what's been an interesting challenge for me this, this season uh, with my team is that I've had to create so many outputs so, you know, who am I working with, knowing the, the biopsychosocial, uh, where they're at technically and tactically, uh, knowing about the sport and my game model and how I want to play. And then thinking about how am I going to actually coach them and thinking about, uh, you know, the, the behaviours, the actions I'm going to use, uh, thinking, you know, a week ahead of, of team talks and, and thinking about certain things I might say for certain situations and, and what's been really interesting for me is since I've started doing that process, I've stopped coming out with the the random things you say. So when you say, uh, 
you know, I see it all the time with, with football coaches. They might say, oh, push up or, or do this or do that. But it's not actually what they want them to do. It's just because they've said that for years that they just automatically say that decision. And then they come away and they go, oh, why have I said that? And that's certainly gone out of my coaching. And, it, and it's very interesting that my, my younger brother, who's my, who's my assistant manager and also a, a student of sports coaching, I'm trying to teach him that now. And it, it, it's such a, it's so interesting. And, and, and you know, and that's how I've tried to approach it. Uh, I've, I've spoke to quite a lot of coaches actually who've who've done it differently, uh, but but I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's and, and I like that what you say about recognizing uh, your strengths or, or or what your particular area is. So you know, for me, I think my area is more in the in the technical uh, in the tactical side. My my younger brother, he's more of a, a technical coach, so I know if that I'm seeing a couple of skills and they're not quite right and they might need a bit of instruction. That's for me, rather than trying to attempt to say something and make a decision that's not right, I will make the decision to go, right, you come in. And that's understanding who you're with, aren't you, in your context and what. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I realise I've, I've, I've gone on a bit there, so I don't know if there's any thoughts to that, Kieran. No, I do. And I do think that a lot of sports will probably, and I'm only looking into the future, but um, follow that and make up of rugby even if you look at the, the actual prime position that the coach takes up it's in the stands um, they have the perfect view of the pitch they're not down being engaged and uh, any misbehaviour coming from other coaches or engaged with the officials they're out of the way um, and they're like they have the, the best view they have all the statistical data in front of them they've got feedback in front of them but if you look at soccer now because there's no fans, uh, I think Solskjaer nearly spends half of his time sitting at the iPad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like it's, uh, we're moving towards the future. I do think it may be something that sport needs to look at. You look at basketball, even like they have a forwards and backs coach or defense and a, uh, whatever the technical terms are. But um, it may be looking at, right, we need to spe- have specialist coaches here. We have uh, uh, athlete performance coaches, psychologists, nutritionists, right? Let's go the same way now for coaching. And it probably will be a better niche for people. Um, and like it might take away that stigma of being the, the, the name thing as well. Oh, yeah. this person is a great uh, technical coach. Uh, this person is a great um, working with forwards or a goalkeeping coach. Yeah. Um, so let's look at that and, and maybe that will shape the future of all sports. Certainly, and and that's actually a really interesting point. I can remember speaking to uh, to uh, a coach talking to me about the importance of performance analysis, and, and he was talking about you know a big problem in in coaching, and a big problem about coach decision making is that we make decisions on what we see in front of us, but we're not always seeing the full picture. Sometimes we're we're maybe seeing what we want to see, or or we're not seeing the accurate view. And he said, you know, the beauty of you know, the, the technology and performance analysis in, in, in now is that you can see that yourself. And then, you know, like so showing the example you mentioned, heading up to his his little technical area, looking on the iPad and seeing it again and again and again and seeing the clearer picture. And, and he was suggesting that, you know, in terms of making a decision, you might see, I don't know, uh, you might think your player's performing really bad at passing and think, right, we're going to have to take him off for that particular reason. But then you go and look at your iPad and you go, well, actually, he's only made three bad passes. And at the other seven or eight and the statistics come on, well, actually, we'd be taking him off. But that's not, is, is it more harm than good sort of thing? And, and I particularly found that that really interesting, particularly about 
the the bias the the idea of bias of yeah. of how that can just yeah you, you know sometimes you know and, and even when you think about you know you mentioned their psychological so even if maybe coach athlete relationships if you've got a player you don't particularly like so you might might be Pogba and Solskjaer and yeah. he's looking for an excuse to take him off and maybe you might see one uh you know I mean I'm not I'm not suggesting that, that that's the case at all but but this stuff I, I've always thought is really really intriguing actually and, and, and like you say how that actually goes and impacts the, the decision making process uh, if you think about the man of the match as part of the decision making process or the player of a match like if you listen to some of the commentators you'd notice where the eggs were painted on because um, I'm sure a fan at the game that also watches the match will give a different perception and it, it does lead me on to this whole thing about decision making um, it's never perfect because we have only two sets of eyes. Mm. The more eyes that we can have, the more decisions that we can make. Uh, and I think the more people that can feed into the process and having all that support network uh, around you as a coach can help you make better decisions. Um, and interestingly, in one of the surveys, it's probably the more senior coach within the, the nine coaches that I've selected. Um, and he... Um, well, I can't wait to interview him because one, I know him well a long time. Um, he's a character um, and he continues that character on the sideline. But I think he's formed a background team around him that helps him um, become, in my eyes, my own personal perspective, a great coach. And he's given ample opportunities to younger coaches too to work alongside him, to learn off him. Um, and the other aspect of that is I think he knows that in later years that he's never going to be coaching forever. So he wants to give somebody else an opportunity. Mm. Mm. And and that is particularly really interesting because you you know, so you mentioned eyes and but but what we also do is we see things differently based on the the knowledge or experience mm-hmm. we have. And that's something I've always found really interesting is I have a particular view of something I've seen that might lead to the judgment I make for that decision. But then you speak to your coaching team and they offer a different opinion or a different or from a side you've never thought. And then that, like you say, refines that decision or refines that thought process further and further and further until you come to this this collective decision. And I think that, you know, it'd be a very interesting argument to see is that beneficial or is that actually can 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 sometimes maybe sway a decision that 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 maybe the coach how they had it right before they spoke to the team. And and that is sorry, the coaching team, and that is that is just just so so interested and in, you know i suppose we could probably be sat discussing this all day couldn't we yeah uh, and then you might get somebody says you get paid to do this i don't <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely. get paid to make decisions i'm only here i'm only here in the background <laughs> absolutely uh yeah i mean you know brilliant I'm, I'm, i've got to say this has been a fantastic discussion so far the sports coaching podcast with sam holmshaw uh, i'm a bit conscious of time so i guess we'll move it on to to the last segment, segment four, and we always finish implications for coaching practice. So, I think a nice way just to start would just—I I know we've, we've we've discussed, but but just as a bit of a summary, really, why is it important? Or also, what's the importance for for coach decision making? Why do the coaches listening to this need to think about how they are making decisions, or or consistently try and improve how they make decisions that are more aligned or attuned with what with what they're trying to accomplish in their own context with, with their particular group? I think um, my reasoning behind, and 
there's a couple of reasons obviously behind doing the, the research, but dropout in sport is one of the ones that I feel that if we can make better judgments, decisions as coaches, then we will have more people involved within our sport. Um, the other aspect of it is that pet hate of the name. Um, let's forget about the name. Let's develop coaching uh, and develop coaches to be coaches. And the other thing is help people make decisions um, because our social and soft skills have got so poor because of technology. Um, like, if I, for instance, if somebody goes to buy a car, they'll look up Google, but they'll not speak to the experts who sell the cars week in, week out. Um, Google will tell them more. Yeah. If they've got a runny nose, let's Google it. Alexa, all of those kind of things. Yeah. We can't make decisions. Um, the other pushing forward is that facilitating it. Where does it fit within your coaching? Um, is it within your coaching context? Is it within your coaching sessions? Or is it within you developing yourself as a person? Um, look, you'll never make the right decision. You'll always make the two wrongs before you make a right. But if you can get one decision right, it will also then uh, lead to you probably uh, taking a reflective look at it and saying, look, I made a great choice there. Uh, why did I do that? But um, So then it, t- it takes you back again as well. Too. Um, the other side of it is coaching is becoming really important. Um, and as I said, what uh, Nash and Collins written there, theoretical stuff, it defines a person. Decision-making defines a coach. So if you look at all the aspects that we've looked about, even of sport and exercise science from psychology, I think we've covered bloody every topic that's in the syllabus <laughs> within this. Um, but even for educational purposes um, and looking at sport in the future um, and looking at what kind of topics and modules, like I teach in the Pearson level three, they've changed now um, back to exams rather than um, pure assessment through uh, assignments. So they've made a decision that people aren't learning the material. Um, so like if it makes people sit up and think that, right, we need to look at our structures or we need to look at our continuous professional development, then let's be it. Let's see what those coaches can do. Um, and if it, if it comes to it that it has to be included within the coaching professional development, then that's a decision that uh, national government bodies have made already. So they've made a decision-making process and decision making happens from uh, NGBs or, for instance, FIFA, any local government bodies in sport, they all make decisions, but we never get an input. Um, and why not let's, why not have everybody um, singing off the one hand sheet? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I really like that point you make about two, two wrongs make a right. I think sometimes that, that people think when we talk about decision making, we're almost trying to lecture them to say about making a good decision but you know what i always say when you know i do a bit of coach education myself is well you know i can't tell you what is a good decision because i don't know your context so you know when we're thinking about are they going to sell show at man united and i listen to a lot of pundits saying he's made a poor decision there on the sub he's brought up and you know i guess in that particular context a good decision is when he brings on Edison Cavani the other week and he scores two goals to win the game that is a good decision in a youth development setting a good decision might be not shouting when you see something that that's, that's cost you a goal because you know you're 
using the knowledge you've got of the context and realizing that actually I'm working with a seven-year-old and, and really in this context, we're just trying to allow him to progress and not, not have him for, for losing me the game and, and, you know, ruining my ego. And, and, and to me that that's, I suppose that's what this all, all, you know, Andy's work about all the line in decision-making is all about, you know, it's understanding what judgment are you using to make the decision that, you know, it's not just saying what's right or wrong, but, but what's suitable for that context. And, you know, I, I, that's what I, I really like about that statement. It is, and, and, you know, we think about coaching as a profession and coaches coming through, it very is 10, 20, even 30 years of making wrong decisions to yeah. know when you get to that hopeful level of, of the professional game or whatever you, you're trying to get to, then you've you've understood that. And, and I think going back to what we were saying about names, you know, when, when we're thinking about Wayne Rooney going into this management role at Derby now, is, does he understand what making a good decision is? I, I don't know. You know, I don't know him. You, you, you think maybe he does in, in, in terms of that context. But, you know, how are these these ex-professionals, you know, we assume that they're going to be good coaches, but they haven't been schooled in understanding who they're coaching or understanding the context or understanding what they're coaching. You know, a lot of, there's an assumption, isn't there, that the ex-professionals in a sport, because they've played the sport, they know the sport, but they don't always, they don't always do have a, a great game understanding, do they? And, Whereas, you know, your coach who spent 15 years studying that but hasn't played actually might have a better understanding of the game. And and and, and that's such an interesting point, isn't it? Or, or sorry, such an in- interesting debate about the name versus someone who hasn't got the same name and hasn't achieved what that player's achieved, but actually has done this in terms of the, their education and such. And that's where that facilitator of learning is born out of, um, um, making those rights and wrongs, because... You're only facilitating the coaching process. Yeah. Um, as long as you've learned and somebody else has learned, um, then we can go away happy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that finishes off, finish, finishes us off the conversation today very nicely, Kieran. Uh, you know, and 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 I, and I reiterate that myself. I, I I do like that word, facilitate, facilitating the learning process. <laughs> such a such a fantastic phrase to say. Uh, Kieran, I've got to say, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed that from a, from a personal viewpoint. I'm sure all the, uh, all, all the listeners have today. I think decision-making is such an interesting topic for most of us coaches. Uh, so, yeah, you know, working, you know, people want to read more into your work. I've got to say, I'd be one of them. Working, working, we find you on social media, uh, working people yep. maybe get in contact to you to, to speak to you about this interesting research you're doing. Hi, Twitter. Um, I'm a lover of Twitter. <laughs> the other social media aspects I'm only catching up on. Uh, Facebook, I think, has went out the window in terms of everything else. But um, Instagram, I don't really use. But Twitter, I'm a great lover of it. It's great for making connections like this. Um, and it's also a great uh, uh, learning tool for coaches. Uh, there's so many coaches that I've been telling. You'll get whatever you want on Twitter. And it's uh, one of the students said to me a couple of weeks ago, how do you know that person? I says, I make connections. And uh, once you start making connections, then it opens a whole different world as well to you. Um, and it's been great to be on something like this and breaking my podcast um, insight uh, has definitely been very enjoyable. I think I've talked about stuff I didn't even really think about I would include in my research, so I'll have to go back and listen and take some notes. <laughs> um, but uh, anybody who wants to give me a shout, they, hopefully it will be published uh, in around May, June next year still. It's a continuous process for a year. Uh, the interview still has to be constructed. 
my supervisor's probably listening in now as well, thinking, Jeepers, he's ahead, further ahead than I thought he was. Um, <laughs> the next aspect, and we all love this part of it, Sam, is the lit review. Um, so there's a bit of reading to be done. Um, the, anybody that has a GA um, or Gaelic football perspective, take a listen in and give me a shout. Um, I don't mind coming and doing even guest stations on how you can include decision making. It really, really does help. Certainly does, and that is, uh, yeah, uh, certainly agree with you there. I'm in the uh, the lit review process myself for my own uh, dissertation, but no, Kieran, that's uh, that's exceptional, and I'm sure people will uh, will probably take on. So it, you know, it just leaves me to say thank you uh, so much for your time. I, I I think that's been a very fascinating discussion and a great insight from your experience and your research into the coach decision making process and I think like I say that will be a very intriguing listen for listeners today so Kieran once again thank you so uh, so much for your time I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it it's been great to connect and uh, once again thanks to everyone who's tuned in today if, if you like the podcast please do leave us a review on any of our uh, any of the platforms the podcast is distributed on and we will see you all next week Thank you.